Welcome to the Behavior Grooves Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Each month, we interview our speakers from our Behavioral Grooves session in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply them to work and life. By the way, the Behavioral Grooves session happens every third Thursday of the month in Minneapolis, so mark your calendars if you're going to be in town. This week, we got to talk with Professor James Heyman of the University of St. Thomas. James's research analyzes how individuals make judgments when they have only a small amount of information. His current focus is on combining algorithmic complexity and information theory to develop a cost-benefit measure for different forms of survey methods. He has published articles in Psychology Science, Journal of Interactive Marketing, American Behavioral Science, Journal of Marketing Communication, Motivation and Emotion, and Assessments and Evaluation in Higher Education. Uh, To say the least, James is well-published. Yeah, and Kurt, as you know, James is the co-author of one of the seminal works in behavioral economics called A Tale of Two Markets, a paper that he published with Dan Ariely. The paper investigated, among other things, how people respond to incentives and What they discovered was that there's this duality in markets. There's a social market exchange and a financial or economic market exchange. Mm -hmm. So our conversation with James was wide-ranging. We discussed some of his recent research. Uh, We talked a little bit about the tale of two markets. He reminisced about conversations that that he's had with Dan and things that have stuck with him for over 15 years, as well as what he thinks about Richard Thaler winning the Nobel Prize. And remember, we also asked him what his theme song would be. So <laughs> Can't forget that. Yeah. It was a great conversation and lots of fun. So we hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed doing it. And without further ado, here is Dr. James Heyman. So, James, welcome. Uh, we're excited to have you here. All the fun stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight in the behavioral group session. We get a little precursor of it here as well as some other background. So just start. Tell us a little bit about your work and your background. Tell us a little bit about you. Uh, my background, I probably, I'm, well, right now I'm a professor of marketing at the University of St. Thomas. I focus on consumer behavior. Um, I got there through the various, uh, the very typical route of uh, what, being a math major, then being an engineer, being in the military for 11 years. Um, pretty much the way everybody Pretty much everybody else, yeah. yeah. That sounds yeah. exactly like the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the I mean, path of... I, I went to business school because I was, uh, I was let go from Ernst & Young and uh, had a GMAT score that was pretty good and discovered that PhD programs pay you to go rather than the other way around. <laughs> so I guess economics works. That's the lesson there right there. So a math and military background, how, does that, how do you think that impacts what you're doing today with uh, the work that you do? Um, I tend to take a, a very math-heavy approach to, to my work. That doesn't mean I do a lot of technical modeling. It's, it provides metaphors. Okay. All right? I think that for all the social science, all the sciences, you know, we're sitting in front of this, this window. There's only one world out there, and every science and social science is trying to describe it. And it's simply one take. And if we combine various perspectives, we should, you know, whether you want to call it triangulation or convergent validity, we should get somewhere. So my metaphors, if you will, come from math and engineering. I just happen to apply them to, say, people how, how people make decisions. Your language there, too, right? triangulation and everything else. Yeah, yeah, just right, my, 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 I'm my, hearing it already. Yeah, so Here do my students, <laughs> which is not always the, the best thing, unfortunately. But you, uh, but, uh, you make sense out of a lot of behavioral things with math, right? Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Um, again, it, it, it's my language. Unfortunately, for example, I was meeting with a student yesterday trying to discuss career options, and I ended up drawing out a signal detection model for this. 
A signal detection yeah, model? Yeah, which is sort of a precursor to T-test, which she was familiar with. Okay. And so we got in, but we needed a little more of the logic underneath. And at first it was, you can't, you can't see it, my hands are going over my head. <laughs> but by about 20, she goes, I got it. And, oh. and it, it actually informed, helped inform her decision. So whatever works, it, with my views, then it's applicable. I don't think I do. There is a field called mathematical psychology. I don't think I'm going to start a field called behavioral math. Um, <laughs> Good. To, to, to account for this. Good. Although maybe I should. Wasn't that Amos Tversky? Wasn't he? Uh... He was a mathematical psychologist. Yes, he was a mathematical um, psychologist. So. Yeah, he was, he was brilliant on that. Yeah. So this is the other way. So if you suddenly study how people solve hard problems and they happen to be math problems, does that mean I do behavioral math? No, I study how people solve problems. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so tell us what you're working on right now. Anything fun, anything interesting from your perspective? There's... Uh, there's two things. One is one with a project that I've been talking to with, with Tim, in fact, about um, if you're, if, how do you incent a group to work together? Mm. Because every time you set up an incentive scheme or any set of rules, there's always a way to game it. I mean, that's the, that's the moral of all the, the financial regulations. No matter how strict you make it, you just make more cracks. And so we've talked about a variety of ways you can incent the group on, you know, you incent the, you know, pay based on the worst person, the best person, the average person. Well, you can actually crank out a, a uh, equilibrium for each of those. So there is an optimal logical amount of gun decking, of, of not doing the work. Mm. And that gives us a, a benchmark, and then you can test it on, on people. So that's the most behavioral thing. A lot of work I'm doing now is how people solve hard problems. Okay. Um, for example, the two that I'm working on, one is how do people, uh, I'm using, again, the, the problem involves how people rank things, large sets. Normally, okay. if any survey you've taken, it had maybe six or seven things. Please rank these in order that you like. Right, we're talking 30, 40, 50 things. Now, I have no anticipation of ever running a survey with that. But it is a hard, measurable task. I can measure, I can quantify how much effort it should take. And then I can use that to develop a model, test people on the benchmark, so I okay. get people's normative. And then I can start doing the conditions. So I don't have to take my findings and compare them to some abstract normative prediction. I can actually use human normative predictions. And what would you, so, so what is that used for? What, what are you trying to get from understanding the difficulty with ranking and how is that thing going to be applied to something that we might be able the to... The key is not ranking. The okay. key is that it's a hard problem. Okay. The same thing, um, if you're familiar with the traveling salesman problem. Okay. No, okay. tell us. It's a very hard math problem. Okay. Um, it has to do with you have some cities that, have, that are uh, certain miles apart and you're trying to get a traveling salesman to connect seven of the cities in the least miles possible. It's what's known as an O of NP problem, which isn't very interesting by itself. It just means it's, it's because they won't call it a, a you know, frickin' hard problem. <laughs> and, and, and it turns, the, the reason it's interesting is because there is no good algorithm to solve it. Okay. So you give this to people to do, and the optimal solution is simply keep randomly trying solutions until you find one. Is that the only way to approach it? That's it. That, that is, oh, that is okay. the best way. Wow. There's algorithms to get close. And so the question is, when you give someone an impossible task, okay. you actually are measuring their effort. You're measuring their cognition because there's no skill. It's like if you give a math student a great geometry test here, hi, here's an angle, trisect it. Okay, it turns out that's impossible. It is provably impossible. And so if you want to see how someone thinks about logic, thinks about their geometric proofs, don't give them something that they can look up or something that's been done 100 times before. 
give them a unique task that they can't possibly already know the answer to. Why? Because it's impossible. So how people work on very, very hard tasks, so now we can back that out to, okay, you walk, so now we could say, for example, choice behavior. Okay. What do people do when they have to make a, lot, a, a large uh, choice? And this is where you get to the, the JAM study. And that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, she and younger yeah, right? work. The yeah. famous JAM study of, of, you know, they back out, they stop, they do all sorts of things. This is another class of problems that as we understand how people do really, really hard. Okay, choosing from 40 JAMs is hard. Well, there's other things that we try to do as consumers, as decision makers, as policy makers, that are extremely hard. How do people do that? And cool. so I abstract it to hard math problems, right? Because mm -hmm. that's my background. Mm -hmm. It's the language yeah. that you talk. Right, but the problem itself is not at all interesting any more than in, in most of the studies we look at. Well, who really cares how you know, people do X? It's what you learn about their thought processes. So you choose the task that illuminates the cognition mm -hmm. or the social interaction. Very few of these tasks that we ever talk about in economics, anyone, no one really cares about helping people buy jam. <laughs> I mean, that's about the, I mean. The jam company. She doesn't, outside yeah, of but the she jam doesn't company. even care. Smuckers cares. Yeah, that's, but that's about it. No, but nobody else really cares about that too much. Well, no, so could, um, does it, could this reveal something about heuristics and about the short, the mental shortcuts that we exactly? Take? But it starts highlighting what is what is the nature of them and yeah. how do you control them? So for the the ranking one, it shows that people do take shortcuts, and you, and you can measure them. It's really just the, sh the curvature of a, of a of a curve. It's as it gets more convex, something's happening. That's and you say, well, people are giving up. They're using heuristics. That's like, oh no, well they just don't know how to do it. They can't differentiate going to the Bahamas and Bermuda for vacation. Okay, cool. Then why is it that when I leave a a research assistant in there pretending to take notes, suddenly the subjects are doing much better? So oh. it's hard to say it's a purely cognitive shortcoming when simply putting someone in the room going gets them to change it. So how much is social, how much is cognitive? And that balance, and I'd argue that that balance, understanding that, because yeah. the best work in psychology really is at that cusp yeah. between those two fields. But you need a way to get those to interact. So if it happens to be rank these countries by how, you'd like to, how much you'd like to vacation there, okay. again, I'm not chilling for a travel agency. It's just a task <laughs> that I can use to put in both cognitive and social elements. It's interesting when you talk about that social element, because that's part of what the, the study that you did with Dan Ariely, right? Mm -hmm. the, the Tale of Two Markets. You brought in the social market into mm -hmm. that economic one. You want to tell us a little bit about that and kind of, I know it was one of the... It's just a it's seminar. The one that, it's that one of Tim my talks side. about yeah. all the time. Uh, look, I mean, the, the simplest version is I can give you uh, an example from my, from my current employment which is, I should probably be pleading the fifth and all of them. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, what the heck. Uh, I've got 10 years near retirement, so whatever. Um, so when I was there when at St. Thomas for 10 years, the new president sent me, well, when I made five years, okay. you got a, a catalog and a page, probably from Tim's company, old company, and it said, choose one of these things for right. your five, you know, congratulations for surviving five years here. Choose one of these things. I chose a car carrier, and we used it regularly, and it, and it was great. A carrier? What? Uh, like a glass pedestal. You put the cake on it. You put a dome on it. Oh, a cake server. Oh, 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 yeah, oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Just, um, just had a... Oh. He's trying to think, oh, yeah, page 172. <laughs> God, you chose that. It was a piece of crap. Yeah. Um, anyway, so for my tenure, so now we have a, an accountant as the president of the university. I, I think it's relevant. Maybe not, but it makes a good joke. So from her, I get, for my 10th year, a, a pre-written card. Okay. And in it is a gift card for $50, 
to the St. Thomas bookstore. <laughs> and it was all I could do. And you can imagine, right? We laughing. It's like, wow, that's horrible and heartless. And yes, I wanted to send her a copy of my paper along with the card <laughs> yeah. saying, you know, thank you for paying me enough that this is an insult. Yes. Uh, so the paper, it, this was uh, when I was still a student with Dan, this tried to formalize that and try to measure because the economic, it's pretty clear. I should have been thrilled with the $50 card. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because it enhances your wealth by Why $50. And, and, and you did nothing to, to Relative it, so to, to the cost of the cake carrier that you have, it must have been probably... 20 times. That cake carrier was a piece of crap. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it chipped easily. It was the cheapest class known to mankind. It must be worth at least 10 times as much. But the fact of the matter is, you yes. have a different relationship yes. with that now. But now, if somebody could have said, wow, we know James bakes a lot of cakes. Let's give him this. It's like, zowie. Yeah, that, that, that would have been right. That just would have been, and everyone in my department, Nirvana. and everyone in my department knows that I bake cakes. It would not have been hard. I mean, think about what is the research that would have been necessary. Mm-hmm. It's not like we had that many people coming up on their five-year mark. How hard would have that been, and compared to you know, what's the cost compared to the benefit that would do? So the paper's about that, and okay. it came up from two things that happened on the same day. One was that Dan was offered. Uh, he was asked to give a talk. This he, was at Berkeley. This was at Berkeley, yeah. Okay. He, so he was going to give a talk to some industry group or something. And he was happy to do it. It was a local group, no big deal. And then they offered him an honorarium of some small amount. And he was discussing how he basically then turned it down because it was insulting and, and everything else. Well, and that was fine. And we're batting around ideas. But that day I had lunch with my brother. And he had just had lunch with one of his neighbors. And this... His neighbor was a, a female, was going through a divorce, kind of messy type stuff. She wanted my brother to go down, fake the signature of her husband to withdraw out like five, ten thousand dollars cash. Okay, well, Haymans are usually we're helpful people. We're, we're cynical, <laughs> we're a little dysfunctional family, but we're always willing to help others. And so he said, certainly, yes, this of course is a federal felony. <laughs> and he knows this, there's no doubt in his mind. And then she says, and I'll pay you 100 bucks. And suddenly his oh. willing to help meter goes from pegged right to pegged left. Oh, yeah. And so I asked him, though, I said, well, what if she offered, say, to take you to, to lunch down at Scott's Seafood, which would be maybe like going to Ike's in, oh. in, in Minneapolis, a nice place. Um, he said, oh, that would have been OK. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm thinking what the discussion with Dan. I go back to Dan the next day. I said, Dan, we got to do this thing. <laughs> yeah. Because it's not just you. It's my crazy brother. And, and that's how it became. And okay. so it's basically a series of tasks where we, uh, pay, it's, we pay people in, in different forms. Money. We pay them in candy. We pay them in, again, a variety of things. But the labor part of it is we don't measure the work. And there's some mis- misnomers in some people that have cited the paper that somehow we paid for performance. Mm. And we didn't. Mm. This is a different area of labor that says, look, I'm, this is like paying a coach, paying someone that you can't measure. The true, it's a true service where you can't really assess how good that person is or how hard they worked or anything else. And so if you pay them, what is their motivation? Will they basically gun deck the work, like my rankers, mm-hmm. or will they 
which I never, I haven't really made that connection before between that notion. Maybe I'm actually just studying how people slack off. <laughs> Maybe this is, this is the theme of your entire yeah, academic great. career. Yeah, how how do I slack off? It just, it just hit me. My entire research stream is people slacking off. Uh, that, that's depressing. <laughs> but that's it, it's a, you know it's a what? Campaign. I think that could actually have a lot of impact on a lot of different organizations yes. and, you know, a bunch of college students as well. They could probably learn Well, it, it does. And it, in fact, now that I think about it, when I when I teach my, my students about how to work on teams and understanding why you know why do you have someone who's not coming to the party? Yeah. How do you figure that out? I mean, or do you just you know bitch and moan for the semester that they're not doing their twenty five percent? And it's always interesting. I remember you know in my graduate degree that we would have these these groups form. And you would have people who would come up at the beginning. I was, and I learned this really quickly. I go, if I put a lot of effort in at the very beginning, I can slack through most of the rest of the time because people all of a sudden assumed you've done a lot of work and you must continually be doing that work. And in fact, I realized I would do, I'd come, I'd have everything the, the very first time, I'd have an outline and all the stuff. You know, it'll actually help in then directing the, the project in the way that I thought it was going to be best. And, and then the rest of the time, I would take the least amount of work, and I would just kind of coast through, and I'd always get good grades. And the rest of the team allowed that. They allowed it. They actually, it was, it was rewarded because they, they associated that initial work that, we, that I had done because they hadn't started it, right? It was that we got the assignment, we met the next day, yep. and I had already done some work on it. And that was a, it was a, is my slacking hack. You can, you can, you can think of it as, as anchoring. I'm not saying one wants to. So this is one you know? of the things, that, you know, so there's a phenomenon. We could describe that their perspectives can be explained by, by, by anchoring, right? They, they saw your initial effort level, and they said that is how hard oh. it works. Oh, yeah. and, and we could, right? But what you really want to do is it's a little gratuitous. We really want to do well. If it really was anchoring, we should also see boom, boom, and just here's a list of other behaviors and other outcomes that, that we should see would be attributed. To that, that should be because this is what we. Otherwise, we're using it as a metaphor. Mm. And I think there's a big difference. And one of the things that happens a lot in, in economics and behavioral economics is I think we need to differentiate. Are we talking? Are we using the language and metaphor of economics, or are we actually talking about honest to gosh, no kidding? Economics. Well, that's a good segue. So, uh, one of the, you tonight, uh, you're going to be uh, sharing some ideas about this behavioral versus economics. Yeah, I can't wait to see what I say. Yeah. So I'm forward to it. <laughs> well, well give, give us a preview of what you might say. What I, what I, what I think. What, what, what's your argument? I, I think what I, what I might say would be really going back to what we were discussing beforehand about about Adam Smith and and the theory of moral sentiments uh, sentiments, because they're. The way it's gotten to is, is we talk about there's behavioral economics. And whenever I see that, I think, okay, what's non-behavioral economics? <laughs> economics is about how people make decisions allocating scarce resources to non-scarce uh, desires, give or take. All right, well, it's how they make that decision. It's how they behave in those markets. It's how the baker decides. The baker is behaving in the market to generate you know, more, breads of, uh, more loaves of bread. How is he doing that? So at what point did, did economics ever stop to be? When, when wasn't it behavioral? It's the same, you know, if, you know, you can kind of ask the question of, of why are we talking about behavioral? I mean, Kahneman, Tversky, uh, Simonson, all these people, uh, Dan, all came out of uh, psychology. And, you know, why aren't we talking about um, economic like, psychology instead of uh, behavior, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, but people like, like uh, George Lowenstein and Thaler came from economics. Yes. You know, so... 
Um, my recollection from George is that his advisor, uh, he was con he was interested in going into psychology, and his advisor said, no, 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 you, you need to stay in economics because we, sort of referring to this nascent field of behavioral economics, need you in economics. You know, it's, it's like too weak to go over to the dark side or the yeah. weak side. It, mine was as an undergraduate, I was taking economics, and I wanted to go play with the, the, the psych department with their with their rats to see if with the with the with the water and food schedules mm -hmm. could you simply behaviorally because they're and that's why I got into behavioral modification which looks a whole lot like economics. Um, I mean, you can teach pigeons how to do game theory, and and trust me, it's not cognitive. It's it's a it's a purely behavioral. Uh, type approach to it with rewards and and and, and disrewards and punishments and, and and things like that. So, but I was told was don't go talk to them, mm. do not go play with them. <laughs> and in fact, uh, I think it was about 10, 15 years ago. There was an article in the Journal of like Undergraduate Economics Education, and the commentary was about should we teach our students about behavioral economics? And the answer was no. What? Yes. And the and the reasoning was very straightforward. If we teach them. I mean, it stuck in my head, and it was, if we teach them behavioral economics, it will confuse them about neoclassical economics. Interesting. It's like, okay, so we have this field, which is supposed to be about how people make decisions. But if we tell, teach them, give them insight on how people actually make decisions, it will confuse them about the theory of how they make decisions. Wow. Well, and you brought up at the very beginning of this, you said, look, we have a window that we're looking yes. out on, and you know, it's, it's a one world out there, and we're all trying to describe that world yeah. in some fashion. And the more ways that we can do that successfully and with some validity, uh, that seems to me to be the way that you would want to be going, whether it's an economic field or a psychology field or sociology or any of those fields. So it, it seems kind of counterintuitive, again, which is one of the things yes. that behavioral yeah. economics <laughs> well, tends to focus in on. This one, labor markets may have a good step because, remember, we're, we're, we're talking about academia. Mm -hmm. So academia is set up by departments. It's not set up by problems. Oh, yeah. There's no yes. problem right. of decision-making department, because that would include psychologists, it would include political scientists, it would include historians, yeah. it would include all sorts Neurologists, of Neurologists, yeah, you could go that all across. That would be fantastic. God, it, that would be great. Good it'd luck. be the male clinic of... Uh, of decision-making. Yeah, decision-making. <laughs> you would get all of the experts yes. around the patient to that problem. Absolutely, and it would be brilliant. How brilliant would that be? But that's not how it happens. That's not how professors are getting tenure. You know, Berkeley right now has a fantastic behavioral program. When I, when I got there, they said, you know, you can do all the psychology stuff you want. Just kind of put a, a fig leaf of business on it or something, <laughs> and, it's, and you'll double your salary. Oh, yes. So if you start as a, an assistant professor, typically uh, in psychology, you're looking at about 50, 60 grand. You take that identical research what we call up the hill, because at Berkeley, Tolman Hall, which is psychology, is at the bottom of the hill. Literally, it is, it is, it is right as you run out of campus. And Haas is up at the top of the hill by the football Where the business school is. Literally, is at the top of the hill. So when you move up that hill, you double your start, double or triple your starting salary. Yes. Wow. Which doesn't really get to our world of, boy, wouldn't it be cool if we were the Mayo Clinic yeah. of decision-making? Yeah, and it's, I, mean, I just remember my MBA at the University of Iowa, it was the same thing. Yeah. You know, you would go, business professors double the salary of yeah. any of, the, of your liberal arts yeah. and economics fell under either the business school or Good. liberal arts. They Bad. had two, <laughs> and the same, so again, Teaching probably yeah. very similar, if not the exact same courses. Very, yeah, so. and and so that and that is 
uh, a reality of is an unfortunate reality. Which again, when we talk about economics, we talk about the world and the problems. We we don't think that it's actually occurring in that uh, in for better or worse in the world of academia. So. Last week, Richard Thaler won the Nobel Prize for economics. Yes. Thoughts on that, given what we're just talking about here? Wow, that's a really good one to take the fifth. Um, <laughs> I, I, have a, I have a much better story of the first time I, I, I uh, talked to Dick Thaler. At well, let's, 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 let's hear that safer. story. So I was, well, I was, I was looking at, at graduate school. Actually, no, I was looking at going to graduate school for, for a PhD at all. And so I called him. And, and from... Uh, and we chatted, and so there I was. Well, can, can I, I, I got to you just call well, Dick Thaler? Why would you call Dick Thaler? Well, not, not, oh, not I mean. Because uh, Steve Hoke said to. Oh, okay, well, that's It doesn't good. help, it doesn't help. Yeah, why did I call Steve Hoke? He seemed, that seemed like a good idea at the time. I, okay, yeah. Because I was, I was 39, not 21. <laughs> and, and that's what adults do. Yeah. Um, so I was talk, talking to Dick, and I was on, on my patio, and we got to talking about Amazon. Okay. And he's going on, how about this is a fantastic company, and he's, he's talking about, you know, because of the reviews and the social implications and da-da, and, and I'm not an overly social person in any number of ways. And so I said, I don't get why, how relying on the opinions of strangers is ever going to give them pricing power. And he kept talking about, well, just, you know, it's going to build this network and, and they're going to read the reviews down and they'll buy it there. I said, and that translates into, buy, into pricing power? And I said, where at this point does Amazon raise their prices? Where do they, how do they profit from this? And as we all know, they still aren't, right? They're, 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 most of their profits are from the web services. <laughs> right, but there's still what I think, and maybe I'm misconstruing what Dick was saying here, is that you get, you get a stickiness with that, and so that you get customers coming back, and you get more traction with new customers. So you, I agree, there's probably not right. a pricing component within that, but if you're extending that, that market to a much broader base, does that does that have anything to go with it? Yeah, give or take t until the antitrust people show up, right? So, <laughs> uh, and, and that's but that's always the big question, right? Yeah. Is, and the big question is, okay, they're 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 growing in revenue, growing in revenue, growing in market share, and the and the sixty four dollar question is, okay, when do they turn that basically into rent seeking? And everyone's waiting. Mm -hmm. That's the yeah. shoe. And as yeah. soon as they go to try to do rent seeking to to bag those those profits, that's going to become an antitrust issue. Mm. Quite possible. That's what that's what that's what rears the ugly head. But if you look at, at today, where really where are they making their profits? It's 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 from AWS, mm. which nobody predicted. Yeah, that's <laughs> right? true. Nobody that's predicted it. twenty years ago that it was going to be from some thing called. Website. So let's get back to the Thaler story. Okay. Where, where does the conversation go from this uh, lack of consensus? Shall we say? Well, he said I was crazy for going for a PhD, um, <laughs> which is the same thing Steve said. So that's so that's good. <laughs> so pretty much all the advice was don't do this. Um, no, it's good, and, and I got into Chicago, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend there. Uh, but it, we, we, we talked a lot, and he said, you know, and I had one week to submit my application. Because, uh, again, I was just talking. He goes, well, you know, we have one week left. Maybe I can get him to extend it for you a little bit. And it was, it was a little late to really put together a nice uh, application package. But, but you did. You got accepted. The following year. Yeah. Yeah, it's the following year. Uh, uh, Got in, you know his work on. And then didn't go there. You, then I didn't go there. Yeah, I ended up at Berkeley. I mean, okay. his work. I think the citation really focuses on his work on on fairness and his work on nudging. Mm -hmm. And I look at that, and it's like, well, you know, fairness isn't that odd if we go back to the original original Adam Smith. And as far as nudging, that looks an awful lot like public policy. 
And you know, I start thinking about Rob McCone, who was the first social psychologist to go work in a school like that. He was actually about a few years before Danny was. Yeah. So he's at the Goldman School at uh, at Berkeley okay. using social psychology. His area is in harm reduction, which is about the least sexy, most violent thing you could possibly deal with in public policy. Harm reduction. Right. This is like needle okay. swap. We can't solve the big problem we want to solve, so we're going to try to reduce the harm. Okay. And so this is this is not a sexy field. No. <laughs> this is not a pretty one. Um, and so I look at the nudge, and it's like, I don't know. You know ec- economists traditionally, you don't judge the rationality of somebody's goals you judge the rationality of the process they used to get there. You want to go take up a 50-mile run, knock yourself out, I think you're crazy, but I'd say it's, I wouldn't say it's irrational. You train for it eating donuts and beer. That's irrational. I got to start thinking something is <laughs> weird, because that, 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 that violates various transitivity laws uh, within, within the economic model. Yeah. And so, I don't know, I, I think there's, there's you know, when, when I was at Berkeley, in fact, we, we sat around talking to Dan about who was going to win the prize. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously, Danny, uh, you know, was, was going to be the early one. And then where was going to, then you get, you know, economists that are kind of using it. But, you know, we were kind of betting on George. George Lowenstein. Yeah. So, yeah, it came down to, to George Lowenstein, Matt Rabin, and Dick Thaler. Okay. And I got to tell you, in the, in the class vote, he came up third. <laughs> How interesting. How interesting. Now, was this after, I mean, so when was this taking place? When? This was back in, uh, what, been about 2000, what, 2001, 2002. So before Nudge came out. Oh, yeah. Before yes. the, that component of, of the work. This was pure really economics. Yep. And the notion is, you know, who's going to get it? If you're taking behavioral things and changing the economic models, you're adding the coefficients, you're changing the exponents, you're mm-hmm. including quantities that if we measure these, the equilibrium we predict is correct, that's Raven and Lowenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are, those are, that's hardcore economics. And, and what Dick said, he's a fine economist, but that's not what Nudge is. No. Nudge isn't about finding another market equilibrium, and that's really what economics... That's their bumper sticker. We find equilibria. Okay, they don't say that, but they could. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> equilibria hunters. There you, you know? go. That's, that's the, the tagline. Next, the next reality TV show. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what is the next horizon? What is, what's coming up? What are the things that people should be thinking about and looking for and exploring? What do you think are going to be the next neat things that are going to drive insights into right. how that world out there... If if I was gonna, if I was going to put a chip down on the board for a long for a long term bet okay. not next year, I would I would lean towards evolutionary psychology. Okay. Because, and this is always something that has has stuck a little for me for behavioral econ, and that is you know if we're so dumb why are we the apex predator? Mm. <laughs> and a lot of the experiments well because you know it's not how people behave all all the time it's when they. You know, it shows some bias, it shows, but generally we get through the day pretty well. So if we are doing these biases, the question is, or the heuristics or any other errors, why? What do we, act, again, it gets back to the question, what are we gaining? What's the reason, what's the value of yes. that component? Because obviously there, there's probably some value to that, or it's a, uh, what do they call that in, in evolutionary psychology, where it's, in, in evolutionary, where it's a, it's just a side byproduct of, of something that is. Right. It, it like has a, bifur- a name. A bifurcation? No, it's... Uh, it's like your appendix. Yeah. But, oh, okay. but we can't keep saying everything we don't understand is an appendix. <laughs> <laughs> right? At some point, we end up with a whole lot of appendices and, and not a lot of hearts and lungs. 
Uh, and, and so I, for uh, probably a really bad metaphor there, but I, that's, that's why I do engineering. Go back to the math. Go math back to the math. Yes, exactly. But I think that's where the interesting is to, I mean, fine, we've shown it happens. We can document, we can, we can, we can make undergraduate dance and, yep. and everything else. I think what we're, and we have implications, mm-hmm. and that's fine. We kind of skipped over the, why is this working? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, I think it's a, an interesting question. And I think as evolutionary psych, that's, if I was going to, again, I would take the, the speculative part of my portfolio, okay. and, and that's what I'd put it on. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So if you had to recommend three books for somebody who really wants to know, then we already know the book you're going to recommend yeah. to him. Yeah. Uh, I, I would, what I would, would be the okay. three books? So look, one of them is going to be, is going to be the, 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 hot, the hot parts of, of Wealth of Nations. So you go borrow someone else's copy, you hold it on its side, and you want to see where all the dirty marks are, because that's the part that people look at. This works for other types of literature as well. Um, but you particularly want to, because the, bar, the, 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 not, the clean parts of, of Wealth of Nations are incredibly boring, unless you're into 18th century agriculture and mercantilism yes, and, and okay. learning about corn. So I think Wealth of Nations is, 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 a, is a really good start. Um, I, I would recommend, uh, I, I like, uh, the, the two systems, I'm blanking on the name though, the, the fast system. Think, the, thinking fast, thinking fast, thinking slow. Thinking thinking slow. Fast, yeah. um, I like that because it, 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 it covers the gist. I mean, whether, whether or not there are two systems, I don't know, but it's a, it's a nice, again, framing of it mm-hmm. that I think makes it very accessible. And Do if you, you think that yeah. he gets a little bit into some evolutionary components yes. within that? So, yeah, the, yeah there's, there's that's that. That's kind component. of probably why that's probably the part. The, you know, the formal, you know, is it this? I think sometimes, you know, you get a model out there and people take it very literally. It's like, mm-hmm. what, there's going to be a different part of the brain? You know, the whole, even the left side, right stuff is, isn't true. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. But it, people really want to take, yeah, but the people really want to glob on to that, um, I think. And, you know, for, for a fun, for the, the, probably the, the most funnest readist uh, would be anything written by uh, Dan Ariely. Yeah. I think predictably irrational is probably a good place to start. Would, would, would you? I haven't read it. You haven't you haven't read any of them? No, I have not read. Well, I'm in it, so no. Uh, yeah, I kind of I, I, I kind of know it's in predictably irrational. Uh, oddly enough, I, I did, however. Oh, another really good book, though. If you're going to dabble in this, there's a book called uh, How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. Um, and that itself is a really, really good book, which I did read 80% of. <laughs> okay. But okay. I can talk about it as I read the whole thing. Okay. That sounds great. But I argue it's, it's, it's rational because since I, I know Dan of that period mm-hmm. and I know his research, really, I, I could pretty much tell you what's in the book. All right. So tell us a story about Dan. Uh, you got Dan from the old days. Tell us a tell us a good story I don't about know, he's, Dan. He's, he's not entirely old days. I still I still deal with him. Yeah, and that's true. I don't want to. It's just uh, still have young children. I think yes. I think really one of the I can tell you one thing. One thing he told me, which was which was very formative in, in my life, and it actually is going to touch on on some things I, I talk about tonight. We were working on the on the two markets paper. Yeah. And at first, the working we talked about the, the money money market and the non money. And he said, "Don't call it non money because it's not a lot of things." Mm. It's and I said I thought about it and I thought, yeah, it's non elephants, it's non fireplaces, it's non what. And this notion of and I, that I like about behavioral econ, the biggest thing I like about it is that instead of looking at what people don't do, fine, they don't behave according to some arbitrary economic rules. 
let's look at what they do do. Mm. And one of the biggest things that really I remember of all our conversations, and I can tell you about his, what, how his wife does a water diet once a week, and <laughs> all, all the details. And when I first saw him with his kid, because I had a small kid, and it's like, oh, wow, you know your kid just like I do. Uh, all, all these things I remember. But the one that really stands out on a regular basis is that, is that notion of that non-money, bad name. Yeah. Well, it's not a descriptor, right? It's a, it's a descriptor of what it isn't. It's right. not a descriptor of what it is. So when we say someone does not follow, the ra- is not rational, which is a great piece of marketing for economists because it's nonsense. It, it's, it doesn't mean you're crazy. It doesn't mean you're an action murderer. It means you don't follow these rules. You don't follow the rules <laughs> that we had that set. We that made uh, we you made know, up. It's just this construct up. that right. we made. But if you don't follow play by our rules, you're irrational. Um, mm-hmm. That's fine, and it's great for the field to get started, and we can point at people and laugh, and it, it really, it's a good time. But in terms of understanding what people do, we can't just keep doing what they don't do. And so really, that, that little snippet, what's that, maybe a 15-second snippet of all the years I've known them, that is the thing that probably resonated the most for the longest. That's very interesting. All right, so we got to wrap this up. We're getting here, but a um, couple things. So. This is Behavioral Grooves. There's a musical undertone with this whole thing. So if you had to pick a theme song, like when the batter comes up and they have that little theme song, what's your theme song? Uh, God. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I, 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 we finally got one. No, I'd go with uh, uh, Numb by Linkin Park. Oh. Because in it, it talks about that I want to be me, not you. And this notion of trying to, again, for me, what I take that to mean is is the the you is not a person. It's that normative framework. Mm -hmm. I want to be understood as I am. And that's the point of behavior, not how I differ from that framework. Very interesting. Okay. James, thank you. I didn't know this was. I didn't know grooves referred to music. That's what really threw me. Yeah, well, you got the little I, 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 icon that has an album. I just didn't hit me. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're an old hippie. Is that what you're saying? It just, it just, it just didn't click. That yeah. was Come on. You, I mean, you were if you were if you were a young millennial, I might give it away and say, well, yeah, you don't know an album or a turntable. Is, no, I thought it was. Right. I thought it was grooves like like being cool. That that it, it has it's, multiple layers. Yes, that's right. That, that's you know, the the, one and, that and actually, the the piece that I'm thinking about from behavioral grooves is that we, we you know, have these grooves that get built into our psyche and we follow nice. all the same habits. And uh, well, our last conversation, yes, you know, uh, our routines, yeah. if they're, yes. they're uh, strong or weak routines. So, yeah. all right. Thank you, James Heyman. Thank, Thank you, you. Uh, so much for uh, joining us today. We yeah. appreciate it. Thank, Thank you very much. All right. We're done. We're done. Good job. Cool. Never did anything like that. That was good. Seriously? Seriously. Great. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral grooves meetup from the night before, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our head. So, Tim, impressions from the session at Cooper's Pub last night? My big overriding message was James's question as to why aren't all economics behavioral economics? And I, I loved that. I thought that that was a great question, because as he, as he was trying to explain, or as I understood it, um, if, uh, if, if our emotions are a part of how we actually make decisions, why shouldn't that be included in the algorithmic development of finding equilibriums? Yeah, and we had lots of discussion at uh, the tables around that conversation or that, that piece of information. I know uh, there was people who were saying, so what is the difference? How would you even separate that out? And I think the, the insight that we got from that, at least for myself, was that 
you know, in reality, uh, all economics is behavioral, but the way that we actually look at economics from a classical, neoclassical economic perspective may not take that into consideration as much as as we probably should. And it was going, again, some of the conversations that we had uh, in regards to, uh, you know, A Wealth of Nations and Adam Smith and what he was thinking about when he wrote that. And he wrote the other book before it, which was... The Moral, uh, the, the uh, Theory of Moral Sentiment. Thank you. I, yes. I drew a blank on that. <laughs> but it was a good conversation. And I think it's one of those aspects that, uh, you know, I think as as we move forward, uh, that there is going to be this, this combination that there will probably not be uh, behavioral economics as a standalone, that it will be integrated much more into everyday economics and with the uh, advent of the computing power that we have and various different things like James mentioned, it's going to all meld into one. So, so, you know, I've talked to uh, recent grads who are economics majors, uh, both at a master's level and at an undergrad level, and it surprises me how when I talk about behavioral economics, they come back and say, oh, yeah, I, I took a class in that, as if it's still kind of a side thing. Yeah, and I wonder if that's going to change in the near future. I'm hoping, again, thinking about Richard Thaler winning the, the Nobel Prize on mm-hmm. on uh, economics. It's not on behavioral economics. It's, it's he won the prize in economics. So is that going to change? And I think one of the things is that the universities and how they teach it is going to have to change. And I think there is this pushback. I think there's the... Uh, that siloed effect that can happen within universities of well that's not my department and that doesn't we don't we don't talk about psychology we're economics people here or vice versa and so there needs to be that component where that gets overcome and that the university system is actually looking at this uh, from a different perspective one of the things I loved about our conversation not not in align with this so much but you know, when we were talking with James and we were talking about how the universities work and, you know, universities don't focus in on a problem, they focus in by department. And, right. and just think about what a difference university would be as opposed to saying, oh, this is the economics department or the psychology department or the neuroscience department as opposed to saying, how do we make decisions and let's get everybody thinking about how that works together. Right. You know, uh, that uh, it, it makes me think about Carnegie Mellon University has recently launched the first undergraduate degree in behavioral economics. Mm. And it sprang from the School of of Decision-Making and Judgment, Judgment and Decision-Making, SJDM. And and I thought, you know, that's really... uh, at first, you know, when I was made aware of it, I thought that's fabulous. That's really the right place for it. But I think James's question sort of begs: Where in a university can you develop a new degree so that it actually is balanced and available to do the work that it's supposed to do? Yeah. To, to challenge the students in the way that it's supposed to challenge them. Yeah. And I think that you know, I, I I did like that too. That you know, all economics is behavioral. So that's yeah. a that's a good insight. Uh, you you were also a fan of the discussion around the ultimatum game, right? Yes, I did. I like the ultimatum game. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, the ultimatum game has a uh, player player A and a player B. Um, player A is given ten dollars. He is one, or he or she has one thing to do which is divide that money up in any fashion he or she so pleases and give a part of that money to player B. Player B then 
gets to either accept the offer or reject the offer. There is no negotiation. There is nothing. He either gets to accept it or deny, reject that offer. Uh, And the interesting part about the ultimatum game is that from a clearly economic, neoclassical economic perspective, uh, player A should be offering as little as possible, a penny, a dollar, whatever that would be, as little as possible. But what ends up happening is that unless you're at about $3 or about 30% of whatever the, the total amount is, player B will oftentimes reject that offer, yeah. uh, more so than, than otherwise. And so it's a classic uh, uh, look at, you know, we, we would say from a purely economic perspective, that doesn't make sense. It would be irrational. The fact of the matter is, is that people have a sense of fairness. So Tim... What do you think about that? Yeah, it's a classic. It really is. It's a classic problem. And uh, I saw the Decision Science News recently uh, wanted to try to understand what it, what the game, how the game plays out in more than just a couple of, of rounds. They got 100 people to run 400 rounds of the game over the course of a couple of months and found that people start to normalize, uh, you know, r- relatively quickly. And, uh, and then as soon as they find out that they're coming to the end then they kind of get into this uh, profit-taking mode, <laughs> you, you might say. <laughs> it's, it's classic human nature, I would say. And, you know, what's interesting for me, too, when I think about this, is we bring this a lot into some of the business work that we do. And we're trying to develop out incentive programs and trying to think about how people are motivated in work. Those types of things have to take that fairness component into account. And the fact that if people perceive something as being unfair, that there is a there's a strong sense of retribution that they will come after that, and it's a very demotivating part. And it's a thing that I think often organizations don't put enough attention to. Well said. It came through in a conversation I was having with a rep this morning from a pharmaceutical company that was was saying, uh, I don't like the idea that I'm working just as hard. As, as colleagues of mine in another division and their, their uh, bonus plan is structured in such a way that they can earn at a lower level of effort than I can earn. And, and this, this rep said, even, even going so far as to say, I, she said, I'm a math major. It is statistically impossible for me to actually reach quota in my territory given the number of clinics that are prescribing her product. And, and, and she said, that's really demoralizing. And, and I think her point was twofold. One is she doesn't like this, the, the bonus structure that she's under, but she doesn't like the unfairness, the perception of unfairness. Yeah. And that perception of unfairness is really apparent in organizations when you have those types of situations that you were just talking about, where you are having two different sales forces who the effort that they're extending may be similar, but potentially the profit for one is different or because of historical contributions and various other things, their incentive plans are different. And so people will perceive that as being highly unfair. And and that gets into a whole different level of how do you communicate that information to them? How do you ensure that you have trained your managers to be able to handle those those, uh, components when they come up? And, and actually, how do you plan? How do you design those incentive plans in order to make sure that you're not building in that sense of 
of perceived unfairness. Because in one of my favorite quotes, and I, I'm drawing a blank on who actually said it, but uh, it was fairness is, is like air. Uh, it's a lot. Its absence is a lot more noticeable than its uh, ah, being there. So, I like that. Uh, misquoted that horribly, uh, but it, it, you get the you get the essence of what that is. Well, uh, that is a, a great reinforcement of the social exchange, right? Yeah. That that no matter where we are, even at work, where where we're there because of a paycheck, there is a social environment, right? Yeah. There's a social fabric to the organizations, and uh, and. If it wasn't for HR, I don't know if anybody would pay attention to uh, to the, the, the social fabric because it's, it's so much as like, I don't care about how you feel. I care about what you get done. But it is it, how, what we get done is so closely related to how we feel at, at work. Yeah. And I, I, I think there are people I, I've worked with salespeople and sales operations who are extremely concerned okay, about so maybe, the maybe social component. So I think there's, there's there. a, a little bit hyperbolic. <laughs> okay. However, there is that case. There are people, though, that aren't right. And I've, I've dealt with those individuals as well who are I, I don't care how you feel as long as we get the work done. And you have to push back on that sometimes and say, but how they feel actually impacts how they get the work done. Yeah. And that social contract piece is interesting. And I'm going back to last night and to the behavioral groove session that we had. One of the big discussions that the, one of the tables had, and then we brought it to the larger group, was about tipping. Yeah. And the whole social contract with tipping and how the merits of that tipping and what happens, like why would people tip if they're going to a restaurant where they are never going to return to? What is the benefit from a economic perspective versus that social contract? So yeah, it, well, one of the tables uh, had a really great discussion about social norms and they just said, well, this is just what we do. And, and culturally. So one of my favorite pieces, and we talked about this earlier, is uh, we had a woman who's originally from England. And she said it was, uh, you know, people in London, the waiters, the wait staff in London love it when they see an American come in because they just look at them and go, sucker. Because <laughs> they're going to, the Americans will tip more. The Americans will tip more. And it, it, it is. There's, there's that element of what is it? Is it culturally induced? Is it just because this has become the norm? And so uh, even when we go, I mean, one of the conversations that we had is so when we go to a place where tipping isn't the norm, there's that sense of guilt that you have of not tipping. Yeah. And we don't like that, right? That doesn't match up with our, our self-perception. It doesn't match up with our self-perception. I feel, I, I know I feel it. I know when we've gone to Europe and you know, we were in Denmark where they're saying, you know, don't tip. And if you do tip, make sure that it's relatively small. And I, I just had a hard time <laughs> on like not adding in 15 to 20 percent. Wow. And then that leads it to a whole separate discussion that we had, which is an often or I've seen recently in many of the taxis that uh, they have the automatic tip come up after when yeah. you swipe your card. And that tip starts at 20 percent. And it goes 20, 25, and 30. And, and, and how do you feel when you're, when you're in that camp? And we talked about this is because I, I have a backlash on that because mm -hmm. I'm sitting there thinking, all right, you're not giving me this option. So they're using these behavioral cues and trying to anchor me in at a higher tip rate than what I would probably really want to do for something like that. Even if I was to give 20%, they're not giving me the option for 15%. 
Um, or 18% or 16% or anything or what, else. And I would have to, I mean, I can, right? You can do that. You can opt out and do your own, but it's not one of the presets. So it gets into choice architecture. Another whole fun area of behavioral economics. Right. So in this case, uh, for you, the choice architecture isn't working because uh, if, I, if I understand you correctly, uh, you, get into the, you get to the end of your ride with the, with the cab driver and you see 20% is the minimum and that smacks against your social norm, against your comfort, right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's exactly it, is it smacks against that social norm. The social norm is tipping is 15 to 20 I'm old. That's kind of what it's been. You know, it used to be 15. It's gone up to 20 and it's probably continuing to, to, to grow. But in that sense, at that point, I feel this little bit of rebellion to say, all right, well, no, I'm going to give you nothing now because you're trying to prompt me to do something more than what yeah. I think is the sociable norm that is out there. So, so, so choice architecture isn't just the, the be-all, end-all answer to every, every you know, problem with price. It, it has to be in the right context, and it needs to be used properly. Well, choice architecture, if done right, can be very helpful. Yeah. So I think what happened in those situations is they're trying to push that, that limit too much, and so it, it, it backfires. So speaking of rebellion, uh, what did you think about uh, Thaler winning the, uh, the Nobel Prize in Economics? <laughs> so I was uh, very, I, I think it lends, lends some uh, credibility to this whole area. And I think that there is, uh, again, as we talked about earlier, hopefully there will be this convergence of economics and behavioral economics. So it becomes not two separate components, that it is just one component in the end. And, and so I think from that perspective, I think it gets some recognition. Uh, I liked uh, Richard's comment at one point. He said, you know, uh, I was a guest of, of uh, Danny Kahneman's when he won, and he's now going to return that favor. And so to bring Danny back to Sweden, I thought uh, that was uh, just cool. a nice tribute to that history and the, the partnership that they've had over the years. So That is cool. I have to admit, I was, um, I, I'm glad. I, nothing against Thaler. I'm, I'm glad that, that Dick won. I think that that's great news, as, as you said, for the uh, sort of for the, the, uh, the study itself, uh, recognition of that. Uh, there, uh, there was this little inkling inside of me that wondered, is he getting it because of the publicity around stupid, you know, inferences and, and social things like being in the big short, mm -hmm. you know, being in a movie compared to George Lowenstein, who uh, Dick Thaler dedicated his last book to George because yeah. of George's influence on, uh, on the world of behavioral economics. I think there's something to be said about, you know, Nudge was a best-selling book. Nudge has become part of the vernacular of how we work. Yeah. The public policy impact that some of Thaler's work has had, whether that be uh, the nudge unit in England uh, or any of the other nudge units that are being out there and in some of the others. I think Ireland is just getting one. I heard yeah. something along that lines. Yeah. So there's an impact that goes beyond, and granted that's policy, and it might not necessarily be part of uh, the economic literature and research, but it does it does make an impact on the world. And I think he's had a much greater impact on the world in that sense 
than a George Lowenstein or even a Danny Canahan. Yeah, well, you're, I, I don't disagree with you, Kurt, uh, that we, we've got a, a situation where there's a, a level of popularity and notoriety that can't be, uh, just simply can't be ignored. No, yeah, right. and, and you got to hand it to Thaler for that. All right. Well, I think that is probably more than enough for this podcast. Uh, but thank you, Tim. Uh, thank you, James Heyman from last night. And hopefully everybody out there who's listening, this was enjoyable. Uh, if you are in Minneapolis on the third Thursday of a month, look us up. We'd love to have you join us in at our next behavioral group session. And uh, without that, uh, have a groovy time.